0: Uh, was well, uh Pastor Michael said, I'm Pastor John. Uh, last Sunday, uh, I was ordained and installed. Uh, I'm so excited to, to be here with you all. Um, and this morning, we're going to be continuing. We're going to return to the Gospel of John. We've been going through a series. Uh, and last week, Pastor Michael preached on 1 Peter 5 uh, for the ordination service. But this week, we'll be returning to the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you're at home and you need to get up and grab them, um, if it's on your phone, if you need a bulletin, um, go ahead and as we're um, as you're turning there to John chapter 19, I just wanted to say a couple of things. Um, so two weeks ago when we were reading the Gospel of John, we saw Jesus cry out, It is finished, and then give up his spirit. Uh, and so if you've been in church for a while or if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you might be anticipating that today—very loud motorcycle— uh, you might be anticipating that today we'd be looking at the resurrection— Uh, But today we're actually going to be looking at the death of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the the spear that goes into his side and being taken to the tomb. Uh, And there's this tension between um, the tears of Good Friday and the death of our Savior as there's an anticipation of Holy Saturday awaiting the resurrection and the joy. And so this morning we're going to be sitting in that tension a little bit. We're going to be sitting in the tension with the the stench of death uh, as we discuss one big question from the text for today, why did Jesus have to die? And we're going to look and we're going to find this answer in three different parts. Um, the, the first answer that we're going to see, they're outlined for you in your bulletin. Um, we're going to see that why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die to become a curse for us. And then the second, we're going to see that Jesus had to die in order to fulfill the scriptures. And then lastly, we're going to see that Jesus had to die that we might believe And follow him. And so, if you look with me now at John chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first. And of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he had al- was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken." And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, uh, about 70 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Our Father, we thank you um, that your church can gather together um, in a a pandemic, um, whether at home or here at this park, Lord. We thank you that um, the gates of hell do not prevail against your church, uh, that the message, the testimony that has gone forth in your word um, has gone out, uh, that that you make for yourself a people, a people united under this gospel message. And we come together called into worship um, by you, called to be a people for you, And Lord, as our our call to worship said today, may we be people who have ears. May we be people who hear. May we be people that are changed and formed by your word. Bless this time that we have together now um, to look at your word, to look upon the death of our Savior. Uh, I pray that as we do so, that you would move in our heart, that your spirit uh, would cause new life, that our faith might grow, and that we might boldly follow him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in our passage for today, uh, we're reading a lot about death. Uh, and death, death is a heavy topic, and I, I want to notate one thing about the way Scripture talks about death as we're beginning to look at this passage today. See, for, for many of us, for all of us, death is not something abstract in our lives. De- death is a reality of life. And all of us have experienced loss in some way or another, either recently or in the past, and we carry wounds from loss that we've experienced. And in in our world, death begins to feel somewhat normal. It's pictured as just the end of the life cycle. But there's always something inherently about death that is alien to us, that is not what we were actually made for. And in this way, we can talk along with scripture that death is actually not the way that life is supposed to be. Death comes in as a consequence of sin and death is an enemy it's an invader death is not the the normalcy of life and so this morning as we're looking at the death of our savior as we're looking at this big question of why did jesus have to die at the onset here i just want to clarify that with scripture death is not normal death is not the way that life was supposed to be death is an invader and so this morning, we're going to focus on Jesus' death. And we're going to focus on it al- along with the, the gospel writer of John as he's going to pull in a lot of threads from the Old Testament. Uh, we might even be able to say something like that um, the New Testament is written with a borrowed pen or borrowed ink from the Old Testament. And so this morning, as we go through this passage, you, we even see a couple of explicit quotations from the Old Testament we're going to see that this sacrifice, how we're meant to understand why Jesus died is something that God started in the very beginning. And it reaches the climax of the story, the climax of redemption history here in Jesus, here with his death on the cross. And now we'll turn our attention more back to to John. That was my little foyer into death to begin us on a light note this morning, I guess. And so as our passage begins, we see that it's it's the day of preparation. And we see that the Jews are very concerned that these bodies are going to remain on the cross. So why were the Jews concerned about the bodies on the crosses? Didn't they want Jesus to die? See, the Jews did not want the Sabbath to be defiled. We even just read in our, in our uh, Confession of Faith together about the Sabbath. And they didn't want the the bodies to defile the land. And so they go and they plead of Pilate, the, the Roman official, that they might get permission to have the soldiers break the legs of these criminals. And this would, this would hasten their death. As, as we're talking about death this morning, this is, this is gruesome. Uh, the only way that someone could breathe that was crucified was to push up on their legs and dig into the wound. And so to go and break their legs, um, the, the, the process was called crucifragum. And so the process would be to take an iron mallet and to break their legs. This would cause more blood loss. Um, Bones would often puncture the skin, but it would make it so that the person couldn't push up to breathe. And so instead they'd have to pull up by their arms and their arms would become much weaker, much quicker. And so it would make the process go faster. And this isn't a request. The, The Romans that are occupying Jerusalem, they have no reason to listen to this request and so the Jews go asking if they would do this. And knowing that it's a holy day coming up for the Israelites, um, that all of the Sabbaths, as we just read in our confession of faith, were meant to be set apart. But this, this was the Sabbath during the Passover. And so this is a specially high day. And so the, the context of all of this that we see, why, why the Jews are even making this request, hoping that the Romans would grant it, is twofold. The first is they're looking to remember the law. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse, or 21, sorry, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, um, we see what's kind of the, the background context to what's happening here. I'll read that passage for you now. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And you shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See, th- this is the concern of the Jewish leaders, is that Christ's body might actually defile the land. But this is where the great irony is, church. Do you see it? Because, because Christ is the one who comes and cleanses the land and the people with his blood. And they're worried that he's going to defile it. Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. Uh, this is even picked up again in Galatians. The Apostle Paul quotes this in his letter uh, in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so the the irony here is they're concerned that Jesus will defile the land, while they've also been very concerned to make sure his execution went through quickly. And now they're looking to have Jesus just removed. They're hoping to have his memory gone as they celebrate Passover. And they're missing what we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, that Jesus is actually this new and better Passover lamb. One of the beauties and the realities of the gospel is that this, is that Jesus is the curse for us. And we we see the curse of Adam, and we see the curse in the garden that comes about from our very sin. And Jesus comes and becomes that curse for us. He comes and he takes our place. One of my favorite hymns that um, hopefully we'll start singing soon as we approach Advent uh, is Joy to the World. Uh, and if my wife would let me, I think I would listen to it year-round. I think it's bigger than a Christmas song for a hymn. Uh, and my particular favorite line to Joy to the World uh, is the third verse, which says, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Because Jesus' redemption, as we're talking about this big question, why did Jesus have to die, It's actually him becoming a curse for us, far as the curse is found. A curse that includes much more than just the the sin of the individual, but of all of all of humanity, a sin that we see in Romans 8, where the ground itself cries out in eager anticipation for the day in which things will be made new. Far as the curse is found is what Jesus comes to redeem. If you look with me again at verse 33... I'm not going to read it, but that's just kind of where we are as we're going back through the story. We see that this request is, is granted. Uh, it makes sense for the Romans, keeping the peace, um, that they would grant this request. And the soldiers go back to break the legs of those that were crucified. But when they come to Jesus, he had already died. And as we saw two weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Michael was preaching, he's cried out, It is finished, and he's given up his spirit. And then instead, the soldiers come and they thrust a spear into his side and blood and water pour out on the ground. This is another thing we're going to look at in a minute with Jesus's fulfillment of the scriptures. But to wrap up this first point of why does Jesus have to die? We see that Jesus has to die to become a curse for us. He, as uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about, our call to worship this morning was from Isaiah 43, uh, but in about 10 chapters after that, we see uh, the prophecy of the, the suffering servant, that he's rejected, that he's pierced, um, that he's stricken for his people, that his wounds are actually for his people. So Jesus becomes a curse for us that we might be forgiven. This, this curse that Jesus takes on by being put to death is for you. It's for me. It's the good news of the gospel. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And so Perhaps um, when you hear this, you might feel a little uncomfortable. Perhaps you're even thinking, instead of the question that Pastor John's addressing of why did Jesus have to die, maybe you're thinking, why did Jesus even have to die at all? Maybe you're thinking of that question differently. Why couldn't God just forgive our sin? And so while all illustrations I could possibly give will fall short or feel trivial in some way, Um, I hope this one will actually help you. Uh, Students, this might sound familiar. I used this illustration like two or three weeks ago at youth group as we're studying the book of Hebrews. Um, But let's imagine for a moment after the service, um, your phone battery died. You're here at the park. You're using audio fetch, and you didn't notice that it used up all of your battery, and your phone's dead, and you need to make a phone call. So you go to a friend, and you ask to borrow their phone. And while you're using it, you drop it, and you shatter it. You break the phone. It's no longer usable. There's only a couple of options of what could unfold from there in that situation. You're going to go to return the phone to your friend. Either you have to pay to get it fixed or to buy a new phone or they do. Somebody has to take the cost for the things that are broken, for the sin that has impacted all of life. Something has to actually pay the price for there be forgiveness for your friend to forgive you for breaking their phone as trivial as that might sound would mean that they are taking the price upon themselves or for you to take it and pay it means you are paying the restitution for it and so this is one of the beauties that we have in the gospel uh one of my favorite uh church fathers is a guy named uh, augustine and augustine has this wonderful phrase Um, to to summarize what sacrifice is and particularly talking about the sacrifice of christ and he says that god himself gives what he demands and this is a beautiful quote so i'm going to say it again and i'm going to unpack it a little bit because it, it helps us understand what we're looking at here in the gospel of john god himself gives what he demands and so As we're talking about forgiveness, that this price must be paid, we see that the the price, the justice, the holiness of God, what he demands for things to be set to right, he himself provides. He himself pays the price for the sin. He himself becomes the curse. He pays the price. God himself gives what he demands in his grace and in his mercy and his love God gives us more than we could ever possibly deserve or earn. God provides the way for our forgiveness. Jesus makes this payment for you and for me, and he becomes the curse. So we, we've looked at this this detail of this first part of the question of why did Jesus have to die? Uh, and for me to summarize it, it's or for the students, because I say it all the time and I get teased by them, to put it in a nutshell, The first part, our first answer to this of why did Jesus have to die is to become a curse for us so that we might actually be forgiven. And God himself actually pays that price. So we're going to transition now to to the second point, and we're going to look at Jesus's death in greater detail. And this is something that we've already actually hinted at as we're approaching it, is that why did Jesus have to die? He dies to fulfill the scriptures. And so towards the beginning of John's gospel, there's this, there's this wonderful poetry that's happening here. There's this, there, think of it like bookends of John's gospel. We have John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel of John say, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And now we see Jesus in, in our passage today in John 19, likened again to the Passover lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. And so if you look again with me at verse 35, Here's kind of the, the, one of the purpose statements in the gospel of John of why is he writing? Um, Verse 35 says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. This is why the the gospel is written. And it was very common uh, for biblical writers to write in this third person. So John here, the disciple is speaking of himself in a third person and he asserts that the things that he's writing about he saw that he's an authoritative eyewitness that he beheld these things with his own eyes and so this this story that has this book in behold the lamb of god who's coming to take away the sins of the world and here is this lamb of god where not a bone is broken is where our story takes us today and so if you look again with me uh we're going to look at both verses 36 and 37 now in turn each um, because in them we see two quotations from the Old Testament, and John says how the, these events that he's narrating of Christ dying on the cross did these take place to fulfill the, these different strands or these different threads of this Old Testament prophecy that we were waiting for. So if you look again at verse 36, the scriptures say, "For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken." And this is a quotation here from Exodus 12, verse 46. And Exodus 12 is where we have the, the Passover, um, is where we have Israel being redeemed and being freed from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And uh, the, the full verse, the context around this quotation, um, Exodus 12:46 says, It shall be eaten in one house. This is talking about the the Passover lamb that they were to eat. You shall not take any of its flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And so this institution of the Passover feast uh, in the book of Exodus, we read of this gracious act of God where the the households were actually literally passed over. It's in the 10th plague where the firstborn son would be killed if they did not have the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. And so the blood of the lamb would take your stead and you would be passed over as the plague came. And the reality of it is, is that something had to die so that you might live. This lamb had to die in your place that you might live. And this blood marked out the people of God as his, as his treasured possession, as his firstborn son. And so... This was something that Israel actually practiced continuously. This is something that they would have a continuous, ongoing memorial of what had happened, of the Passover, of the redemption from slavery in Egypt and the bondage. This was a memorial of the thing that God did. And so here and now in the Gospel of John, we have the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And His blood marks out His people as His own. And it's far more precious than the blood of a lamb over a doorpost. Jesus is the lamb of God, and his death provides this cleansing blood for his people. Or as Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Jesus, not a lamb, is who takes your place. God himself gives what he demands. And John identifies Jesus as this lamb, Jesus is the Passover lamb, not one of his bones is to be broken. And this isn't just for a plague in Egypt, but this is for the very sin and wrath that separates us from God. God himself is giving what he himself demands. Let's look at this second quotation now in John here in verse 37. We see, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. Here in John, quotes Zechariah 12.10. Uh, Zechariah is one of the, the last minor prophets in the Old Testament. And this, this prophecy of the pierced one comes in, in the, the back half of the book. And in the, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet in chapter 10 is spoken of that, that he is to be like a shepherd to God's people who are like sheep wandering away. But the people actually reject God's prophet, Zechariah, who is to be like to them a shepherd. And they actually pay him 30 pieces of silver to go away. And Jesus, we see in the Gospel of John, this is where this, this poetic and this beautiful unity of Scripture comes together. Um, we see in John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. And we see Jesus actually portrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And the prophet then in Zechariah 11 into 12 announces that there's going to be judgment upon the people, but that God is going to deliver his people in that judgment. And the Lord says to the prophet, this is the verse that's quoted here in John. This is Zechariah 12:10. When they look on me, this is the Lord talking. When they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. See, the prophet foretells of a day uh, of which the, the king of Israel, the heir of David, will be pierced to save God's people. And Zechariah's prophecy builds to this emotional climax where in the, the typical prophetic poetic language um, we see this story unfold where after a hard-fought battle the people seek the hero the person who led them the king who led them to victory who stood fast whose valor brought this victory this firstborn son the son of david but the battle has been bought with blood and the king has been pierced and the king's blood saves the people but it comes at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the anticipated son of David with an eternal throne. He was the firstborn. He was valued at 30 pieces of silver. He is the king that is pierced for his people. And John calls for us to hear this testimony and look upon this king who is pierced for us. That we might believe. So why does Jesus have to die? Jesus has to die to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus dies as our Passover lamb. Jesus is a pierced king for his people. Uh, today's Reformation Sunday, for those of you who didn't know it, so 1517. Um, so over 500 years ago it was the, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I thought I had to have a quote from John Calvin or Martin Luther today. So here's that one quote, and then I promise no other quotes. Um, what has been foretold in the scriptures is fulfilled perfectly in the person of Christ. And so why does Jesus have to die to fulfill the scriptures? And just working in a Calvin quote, cause it's Reformation Sunday. Um, this perfectly fulfills the scriptures. And so do you, do you see church? Do you see that this scripture, if you picture a great tapestry, um, now we don't typically have tapestries up in our home, but if you look at a tapestry from a distance, you see the whole picture. But if you go up really close and if you look at it from the angle that you weren't meant to look at it and you look up at it, you see all the individual threads when you look at a tapestry. And so what we actually have is we're looking at um, Deuteronomy, as we're looking at Exodus, as we're looking at the prophet Zechariah. We see what is threads along the tapestry of redemption history. And we see that when we step back and we look at the tapestry as a whole, we see that everything is pointing us to Christ to he who is pierced for us, he who is our Passover lamb. And the the amazing thing is with scripture, we can actually look at those individual threads and we can see them throughout time of how God was acting, how God was preparing his people for his son to come. And this tapestry has hundreds and thousands of threads. And throughout the Bible, we see these pulled together to this point of good news. And so do, do you see why did Jesus have to die? Well, we actually understand it, and it becomes so much more beautiful when we understand his sacrifice in the context of that tapestry, of redemption history, of what God is doing from beginning to end. The curse that we see, not only of the law that's mentioned in Deuteronomy, but the curse that we see in the Garden of Eden and the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, we see that traced through redemption history and point to Christ, whose heel is crushed. We see God making for himself a people when he calls Abraham and that they're actually to go out and be witnesses and that the goal from the very beginning of creation as God calls Israel to be his select people is actually that they might go out and bless the nations, that they might have like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, that they might go out and bless the nations, all of the people. And we see throughout that redemption history, these promises build. Uh, I mentioned in Isaiah before, the suffering servant, and how we're we're waiting for that. We're anticipating that. And throughout all of that, those threads, as they come together, this picture begins to get painted. We're seeing the threads come together, and we can step back in this moment in history and look back at the cross and say, there it is. There is the purpose and the mission of God from the beginning and end. Is Jesus, is this gospel, is this good news, is this question even, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus has to die to fulfill the scriptures. The anticipated king, this will be my last one, I promise, because we can rattle off so many. Um, 2 Samuel 7 is where we see the Davidic covenant. We see this promise of a king who's going to sit on a throne Forever. And we see kings longed for before that. And we see Israel even choose bad kings with Saul, who is just handsome and taller. And we see that there's this this king who's going to come. And it's a king that actually buys his kingdom with his own blood. A king that is pierced for his people. Do you see how beautiful this tapestry is? Do you see how beautiful it is the way that scripture works together? And that how we can understand this question of even why did Jesus have to die is we have to understand what's happening. What is he actually doing? He is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. He is the once and for all atonement for sin. And so thus far, we've we've seen that Jesus becomes a curse for us and that Jesus dies to fulfill the scriptures. Now we're going to look at the the final point, which will also have application for those of you who have maybe wondered, where's the application? Uh, Because the application really is look on him um, who has died for you. Uh, But we're going to look at this final point of the Jesus dies that we might believe and that we might follow him. Look with me again at verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. and there is something very importantly for us to note culturally in this passage in the world ruled by the romans it would be very dangerous to be associated with anyone who was crucified they were criminals they were to be to associate with them was to associate with the very worst type of people and here we see two men joseph and nicodemus who take great risk to bury jesus First, we see Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a city of Jews, and we know that Joseph was actually most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the group of Jewish leaders that ruled legally under the Romans. They were against Jesus. And this man kept his allegiance to Jesus secret for fear of the Jews. He kept this secret for fear of his own peers. And here we see him take this massive risk. He risks his status He risks his job, more than likely, like culturally as well. He probably risks his house. He probably lives in an estate in the area. And what he had formerly kept a secret, he now proclaims publicly through this one action. And he risks everything in following Christ, no matter the cost. Nicodemus, the second man, takes a similar risk. Perhaps his name sounds more familiar and it sticks out in your head that in John chapter 3, he comes secretly to Jesus at night, as John 19 says, and he's the person that has the conversation of that you must be born again, and he he leaves away with with his heart heavy. And this uh, Nicodemus, he's also identified for us as a ruler of the synagogue. This is someone who also holds official power. And we see that in the Gospel of John, what he had come secretly to do, now he boldly does. I cannot help but imagine the surprise of these two men. Picture it with me. You have Nicodemus and Joseph. They're both Jewish leaders, and they're both either secretly sympathetic or secret disciples of Jesus that are now, upon his death, ready to risk everything to follow him, something they weren't willing to do in their life. And maybe you're... um, if you picture yourself kind of mentally in the the, the space of, of Joseph, you see Nicodemus coming with 75 pounds worth of burial goods uh, per the Jewish custom. And you're walking forward and it's like, oh wait, you too? Like, are you safe? Because you're, they're risking everything in that moment with what they're doing. And imagine the community and the brotherhood that they felt in that moment as two Jewish men who were defying the Jewish leaders of which they were a part. And now... They're risking everything to follow Christ. For these men, that their status and their wealth that prevented them from following Jesus while he lived, now they risk everything to follow him. The things of earth grew strangely dim in the light of Christ's power and grace. They found in Jesus something far sweeter than any status or comfort than this world could offer them. And they prepared the body of the Lord and they placed him in a new tomb in a nearby garden. And here we behold, if we think of our tapestry again, a beautiful echo of the Garden of Eden. For it is most fitting that our Lord is buried in a garden, for his suffering and sacrifice resulted from the transgression in the first garden. The price paid our Lord is laid in the tomb, but this is not the end of the story. For we know that death is defeated, and that the tears of Good Friday and the anticipation of Holy Saturday become the joy of Easter morning, the resurrection death is defeated and sin is no more and I don't know if Michael or Wade's preaching next week I don't want to steal any of their sermon for next week so that's all we're going to say on the resurrection for now with this one exception from this garden we anticipate the making of all things new the garden of resurrection things being set to right Uh, in the early church just uh, as another example uh, we had a man named Polycarp that you can read about and Polycarp was, was a pastor, and during the Roman persecution, he was captured. And like many Christians during that time, he was led to the Colosseum. Uh, and he was given the option, um, as a pastor, because they thought it would strike at the church, he was given the option to call Caesar Lord, or to be fed to the lions for the entertainment of those gathered. Uh, and what he said has always, for some reason, just stuck with me, because it, it, it's such... Good reasoning, it's such clear love and affection. It's someone who's clearly counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ no matter what. Listen to what he says. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. After that, Polycarp was fed to the lions to a cheering crowd. Polycarp was someone who, who counted the cost. And here in our story, we have this same attitude with Joseph and Nicodemus. The honor that they failed to show Jesus when he was alive. Now they run to his dead body, knowing and believing that he is the son of God. And they have become new men that are ready to follow no matter the cost. Up until now, uh, I mentioned before that I'd refrain from application. And ultimately, the application on the death of Christ is to look upon him who became a curse for you, who was sacrificed for you as a lamb, who is the king who is pierced for your transgressions. But the application I propose now is twofold. So first, look upon him who took your place. As John writes, this is that you might believe cry out in faith that the beauty of the gospel might be yours that you might be his people and he be your king grow in the affection for your king grow in the camaraderie think of joseph and nicodemus both risking everything think about the joy that they would have felt in that moment seeing another brother following after the lord count the cost of following him and do not go alone go with others we're, we're not called to be individuals on islands. We're called to be a family together as we follow the Lord. And the reality is that being a Christian is continuing to grow to be more polarizing. So brothers and sisters, what will you do in a day in which you fear man? If it if it comes in our lifetime, what will you do? Are you, or are you worried about something like being canceled? There, there's so many different things we could consider in our current moment. But I think the example of Joseph and Nicodemus is the encouragement that our heart needs of go with a brother or sister. Don't go alone. Go together worshiping the king. Second, by way of application, I want to examine just a little bit farther these two men who bury Jesus and the cost of discipleship. I've already stated the extreme risk that they take in this act of affection and alliance to Jesus. This would make them enemies of both the Romans and the Jews. Their actions make themselves exiles of all popularity, risking all of the comforts of life. During World War II, there was a there was a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Perhaps you're familiar with his name. He was a he was a pastor. He worked as a spy. He was a part of the underground church. He was a part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler that failed. Uh, He died in a concentration camp. He had the opportunity to hide out in the United States, but decided to go back to serve the church. Um, And he has several very popular books. One of the most popular is The Cost of Discipleship. And I think a part of his thesis fits very well for us as we consider it as a point of application from this passage. Because central to uh, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is this juxtaposition between cheap grace and costly grace. See, cheap grace, cheaply following Jesus, offers some comfort, but it never offers transformation or obedience. Like that of Joseph, who is secretly following Christ. Cheap discipleship neglects the community of God's people. It doesn't want to be associated with them. And it takes the gospel and makes it just philosophical self-improvement or a get-out-of-free-jail card. But costly grace and real discipleship bids for us, in, in the words of Bonhoeffer, to come and die, to be made new, to risk everything, to have deep community, to be associated with people that are outcasts to take our sin seriously, to live life with people who take our sin seriously as well, which can be difficult. We would all prefer to live a life that, does not need, that cannot be rebuked because we don't let people in close enough to actually do it. This costly grace is to follow Jesus with all of our lives. Cheap grace is cheap because it requires little to nothing of you. Costly grace, the gospel grace requires that your whole life be under the kingship of jesus so the big question that we've considered this morning is why did jesus have to die and i hope that church you've seen that the the rich tapestry that we were talking about of redemption history that jesus had to die to become a curse for us to take our place to be our substitution just like the lamb for the israelites in the exodus something had to die so that they might live that Jesus had to die to become our Passover lamb, that this king who has lordship over everything was pierced for you, that Jesus' death fulfills the work of God throughout all of time, and that our God, he makes himself a people, and he does so by giving what he demands, that he becomes the sacrifice. This eyewitness testimony of John, the very words of God given to us in the Bible, are so that we might believe that we might look to the promise and redemption of jesus christ this is the central focus of the tapestry that we too like joseph and nicodemus might boldly follow after christ in all of our lives would you join me in prayer our father we thank you uh, for your word Uh, We thank you for the death of Jesus, uh, a death that we could not die, uh, a a death that we could not earn, a death that we could not deserve, um, but that you give it to us in your mercy. You give it to us in your grace, Um, your very holiness and your mercy and your love meet together at the cross to make us your people. Lord, now as we um, prepare our hearts um, to, to feast on the Lord's table, Um, this means of grace that is given for us, uh, of Christ's blood spilt for us and his body broken for us. Lord, I pray that this would be a a tangible reminder that we might taste, touch, and feel the gospel, uh, that we might go forth nourished and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.